Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Antioch Church. I'm delighted that you're with us today. Growing up, I was always scared of death. I knew it was going to happen, but I didn't know what was going to happen afterwards. And so I tried to avoid it at all costs. And when my grandmother died, I was asked if I wanted to see her body. And my immediate reaction was no. Like, it was going to be scary. And when I came to faith on the 11th of February 2003, I stopped being scared of death, knowing that Jesus had conquered it. But I still had never seen a dead body before until I came to the States uh, being a pastor over here. And it's much more common practice to have an open casket of viewing before the funeral. And I still remember the first body that I saw. It was, the thought stayed with me, and it was that the person was gone. And that's part of the, the pain. And they were there in a, a perfect physical likeness, the person that I loved and knew. But the spirit had gone. And you knew they were no longer with us. I remember as a kid growing up, I uh, looked at waxworks of celebrities and thought, they're not very good. They don't really bear a resemblance to the person. And then as I'd seen different bodies at funerals, I realized that waxworks really do bear the resemblance. It's just that the spirit's not there. That's why it doesn't really ever look like the person. Well, James, in our teaching today, talks about death. He says that faith without works is dead. It's like a body without a spirit. It's kind of a shell. There's nothing vital there anymore. James is writing to the uh, scattered church uh, outside Jerusalem, so all around the Roman Empire. After Stephen was martyred, uh, persecution increased and Christians spread out everywhere. And lots of them weren't connected to a church. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he still cared for them. He wanted their faith to continue. He had lived with his brother. He knew who Jesus was. And when he saw the resurrected Christ, he realized that his brother, he then called my Lord. And he starts uh, the letter referring to Jesus as his Lord. And he's encouraging them, like trials are going to come. It's part of life. But when trials come, you can either respond like your old self before Christ, which is to doubt God, concentrate on anything other than God, and be led to temptation. And that's what the rest of the, the letter's like, lots of different temptations you can get led towards. Or he says, if you're in Christ, like God will use trials as a test. Focus on God, trust in him, and he'll use it to purify your faith. He'll start making you more and more like Christ. And we call this teaching series Faith That Works. Faith That Works because we now know with the hindsight of history that persecution, far from destroying the Christian faith, was the very fire of revival. And it's exactly because of letters like the one James wrote to the people that weren't attached to churches, that they not only persevered in the faith, but they had an authentic faith. They lived wisely, and they shared the heart of Jesus with others. When we're talking about faith without works is dead, James is saying, watch out, make sure that the, the trials don't break you, they're designed to make you. So trials are designed to make you, not break you. And he's spoken about listening and doing, he's spoken about avoiding favoritism, and most people go, yeah, that makes sense. He goes, but no, but do you really understand it? 
Because your faith may be broken already. Like if you believe, but there's no outworking of your faith, maybe you don't have a faith at all. Before I read the text, I'm going to pray for us. Will you bow your heads as I lead us in prayer? Father God, thank you that you've not left us alone. Father, thank you that you did not leave those early Christian communities alone, when they were persecuted, when they fled for their lives, when they left the familiar home of secure and big churches started and run by apostles. But instead, Lord, they had to go it alone. But we know that you were with them every step of the way. You as Holy Spirit within them, giving them your authority. And at the same time, thank you for using James, Jesus' brother, to encourage them what his brother was all about, what his Lord was all about, and how through James's letter and through the faithfulness of the early Christians that is passed on to us, help us to live wisely and authentically so we may pass on the good news to others. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to pick up the text. It's James chapter 2, uh, verses 14 through to 26. You can get really good eyesight, you can follow on the screen. Otherwise, trust me or don't trust me and actually read your Bible. Uh, NIV version, if you have the phone app, go ahead and open that. I'm going to read the text through in one and then chop it down to three smaller bits and explain it. So verse 14. Says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose your brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, no, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds instead. James starts off asking this rhetorical question. Can he give you a heads up? Don't call out the answers no. Uh, verse 14, he gives this rhetorical question and then spends the next few verses giving the answer over and over again. He uses strong language throughout this letter. It's over 50 commands in over just 100 verses. And he's not being a jerk, he just really cares for people. It's like, it's going to get messy. As God is working the impurities out of you, it's going to get messy. But listen to this. He really wants people to understand it. 
Like, we don't want a doctor to give us fluff if we're ill. James does not want to give fluff to the scattered Christians. It's like, pay attention to this. So when you hear him saying, you fool, it's not me saying, you fool. I sat under this. Uh, it's James really having a pastoral care and wanting people to continue in the faith that they inherited. She says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Well, it, it's no good. Can such faith save them? No. Jesus is talking about what good is it. He means what benefit. What benefit is it? What benefit is it? So verse 15, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what benefit is it? Because in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. And Jesus uses the word dead because it leads to death. If we do not have saving faith, we'll be eternally separated from God. It's not a living faith. It's not good for anyone. It's not going to revive us. It's not going to share God's love with the world. It's good for nothing. So he uses this really strong word, dead. Not to be dramatic, but to be factual and to put it out there. And in verse 16, he's uh, speaking against false holiness, false piety. You know, when outwardly you pretend you care, but inside you could not care less. Exactly like his brother, when Jesus uh, was speaking to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, people on the outside that looked like they had it all together, but on the inside were hollow or rotten or mean or spiteful or considered themselves God. He spoke about the good Samaritan. Samaritan was maybe the enemy of Israelites. And as a wounded person, all of the religious people walked past. And Jesus is saying, no, the... Uh, the Samaritan, someone who you consider unclean, he was that neighbor. That person had a need and he met that need. And James is following along with his brother here. He's saying, don't on the outside pretend to be all good. Like, if you really don't care for someone, maybe you're not saved. At the very heart of Christ is compassion. At the very heart of representing James's brother of his Lord, he says, there is a concern for the poor. There's a concern for widows and orphans. There's a concern for those in need. It's like it's useless for them, the people in need, and it's useless for you. It doesn't do any good to anyone. Then he anticipates an objection. We're going to deal with a couple of objections in the next three verses. And it's someone saying, no, like you can have faith, and you can have deeds. They can be separate. And James says, no. Separating faith and deeds is like separating a living body in half. You end up with a corpse. There's no living faith if we separate faith and deeds. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith. As in, yeah, you're Jesus' brother. Of course you're going to believe in him. Uh, I have deeds. James says, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. 
James would say to us, said to me as I was reading this, do you separate faith and deeds? You're just a hollow shell. You do not have a living faith. There's no spirit of Christ in you. There's no heart of Christ in you. He speaks about demons, and I was studying this. It felt kind of a strong rebuke. As I studied a bit more, I understood what it meant. Uh, when it says, uh, even you believe that there is one God. Good. Uh, in Deuteronomy, there was a part that said God is one. So really uh, devout, at least on the outside religious people, would start the day saying, the Lord our God is one. As in, I'm dedicating the day to you. At the end of the day, they'd say, the Lord our God is one. Like, I close off the day to you. It's a mark of uh, holiness. It's a mark of outward piety. Uh, and he says, well, great. The, but demons believe that. The demons believe that the Lord God is one. And they're scared of him. At least they're doing something. They're kind of shivering. Don't say, I, James is saying, don't say, yeah, I get it. Like, Christianity is a good thing, following Christ is a good thing, yet there is one God. I get that. Say, so no, 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 you don't get it. If you got it, if you got who my brother was, if you got who my Lord was, it changes you. It changes your heart. It's a whole body renewal happening. It's not just what we believe and think. It's what we feel. It's our compassion and it's how we behave. The difference between demons and Christ followers is Christ followers have submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. We've typically got to the end of ourselves, said, I can't keep going myself anymore. Jesus, I do not want to be me anymore. Save me from myself. We ask Jesus to forgive us of all of our sins, and he does that. Not only do we trust him as Savior, we trust in him as Lord. We say, I want to live for you now. Some of us demonstrate it publicly with baptism, but it's an ongoing posture. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to follow Christ. It's that heart that's been changed. Before coming to faith, as an addict, I didn't want anything to do with the things of Christ, thank you very much. When I came to faith, suddenly it's really important for me to do them. The only way I can explain that is God changed my heart of stone and turned it into a heart of flesh, the one that cared for things that God cares for. So James is saying to them, you might be pious on the outside, you say you've got faith, you don't need deeds. He says, no, you haven't surrendered to Jesus. You haven't given your whole self to him. You're kind of like demons. Like it's good for nothing. It ends with death. It ends with you submitting to Christ, but not in the way you'd like it to be. Second objection uh, that we have is Paul. So this, uh, the scattered Christians did not necessarily get the letter to the church in Ephesus. Paul in the church in Ephesus says some texts that this seems to go against at first glance. We're going to read the text to you. It's Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 10. You follow with me in your Bibles on screen says this. It's in the context of the gospel that we've been rescued from death and destruction and how we were rescued. Paul says this, verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift from God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. First glance, it looks like James is saying, no, you're kind of saved by works. And Paul is saying, no, you're not saved by works, you're saved by faith. Verse 10 is critical. Paul is speaking against people, saying, don't just look at your works and imagine you're saved. If you haven't surrendered to Christ, if you do not have his heart, you're not saved. And James is speaking to people that have the understanding of who Christ is, but don't have his heart. They don't want to be doing the things Christ does. They're coming at it from different angles. James says faith without uh, deeds is dead. Theologians more recently put that in different terms, which is we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. So we're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. So that makes sense. We put our trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross. But as we're given a new covenant, a new heart, and the indwelling Holy Spirit, guess what? It changes what we think, what we believe. It changes what we care about. It changes how we act and behave. It's a whole body response to him. And we are saved by faith. But works are part in it. God has saved us for works. It's not like, hey, Andy, I want you to receive my forgiving love that my perfect provision in your life, I want to redeem you from death and destruction. Stay there with it. Don't share it that with anyone. You are the, you're, it's all about you. Don't worry about anyone else. It, it's not that at all. It's we encounter the love of God, and it changes us. We hear the good news of salvation, and we can't help wanting to do things differently, to share it. Uh, ministering to the poor, it's, it's mentioned here, it's, uh, suppose a brother or sister without clothes and daily food. It's a really good litmus test of uh, the reason behind our works. Now, when Christ gives us a new heart, a heart of stone changes to a heart of flesh. James's heart of not believing his brother was the Messiah, of not being there for him at death, but then meeting him there at the resurrection... And then having this life change and wanting to lead people. Uh, he knows uh, how it looks like action. But he's saying, here, if you, if you have a hard heart towards people who are hungry and in need. If you have a hard heart to the homeless. And it's not just a, I've walked past and I should have not walked past. I should have uh, given them some food, taken them out for a meal. He's saying, if your ongoing posture to the homeless is hard-hearted, that means you couldn't give a rip about them. You're kind of in it for you if you do anything to them. The litmus test is, you're ministering to the homeless in Chicago, and you're thinking, I hope that no one sees me. Because you're embarrassed by the condition that people have been made in God's image you're in. We don't have the heart of flesh. Or if we're thinking, I hope everyone sees me, then we're doing it for ourselves. I'm a Red Sox fan. I love Mookie Betts. Uh, after game two in the World Series, in lots of the newspapers around the news, it says, Mookie Betts, he was feeding the homeless after game two. 
But how, how good is he? And I'm thinking, he is amazing. And then he was interviewed, and it was really embarrassing for him. So I didn't want anyone to know. And the reason was, it was superstition. He wanted to hit two home runs in his next game. It wasn't really caring for the poor. A friend of a friend had done it and hit two home runs. His friend did it the next game, hit two home runs. Mookie Betts, not been playing well, I want to hit two home runs. So that, that is not, he was not doing our concern for the poor. He's not sharing God's love with them. It's like, what's in it for me? Now, I don't know where his heart is, but I know he's a good baseball player. And James continues, it's like, don't think this is just it. Like, if you're thinking, yeah, but come on, some people are a bit better than others. Like, maybe I deserve it a bit more than someone else. Like, I'm not really like that, am I? He says, no, think of Abraham. If you want any more examples, think of Abraham. He is the father of our whole belief system. God spoke to him, called him out to another land, made a covenant with him through which he blessed all nations. But even he was not saved by what he believed. It's not just belief alone. But when he trusted God with sacrificing his son Isaac, he showed that deep down he fully trusted God. Another really good litmus test of how much we trust God is when was the last time that we did something that made no, no sense to a non-believer, but we felt that God was asking us to do it? Now, when was the last time that happened? If it hasn't happened yet, it will happen. It's showing that Abraham really showed that his was a true living faith. He believed that God was going to resurrect Isaac. It made no sense if God was going to bless the world through Isaac, and he's saying, and kill him. And guess what? He didn't have to. He provided a sacrificial ram. But the readers might think, yeah, that, that's Abraham. Like, he was special. And James goes, no, 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 no. Like, on one end, you have Abraham. On the other hand, we have Rahab. Like she was a non, she was a Gentile. She lived in a city of Jericho. Her name is dedicated to the Egyptian sun god. She was a prostitute. She was an innkeeper. She had nothing with which to give God. He had everything with which to give her. And it made no sense that she chose to side with two Israelite spies that were visiting, who were doing a reconnaissance mission before they invaded Jericho. She would have died if people found out. And they did find out. But again, it's saying it wasn't just an intellectual understanding. It had an outworking. Now, we taught on Rahab a couple of months ago. You can get that online. It's hard to pinpoint when a, uh, Rahab surrendered her life to Christ. When you surrender your life to Christ, that's called justification. That's when you're made righteous. At that point, you are perfect in God's eyes. Then the process of sanctification, when trials are coming our way, we focus on God, it's going to keep refining us. At the end, there's justification when we meet, uh, glorification when we meet Christ face to face. It's hard to tell when Rahab was justified. But the point is the same. The point James keeps repeating is faith without works is dead. Wasn't good enough for Abraham. It wasn't good enough for Rahab. You're probably somewhere in between. And he's saying to us, it's not going to be good enough for you. I came to faith in a church uh, in Cambridge. It was for Cambridge students and postgraduate students. There were a lot of 
people that could have a good conversation with Stephen Hawking there. And the thing that that church was most trying to teach against was don't just understand it intellectually. Like, oh yeah, I get that. Yeah, I understand what that means. Yep, get that. Like, no, 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 it goes from your head to your heart. And from your heart, it goes to your hands. So James is saying that to the scattered Christians. James is saying that to us. Verse 26. So the body without the spirit is dead. So faith without deeds is dead. James is saying, if you claim to have given your life to my Lord Jesus, you will have a new heart. It's not just going to be a head knowledge. Paul's saying you can't just point your works. It's not just going to be a hand thing. You've been changed from the inside out. We're giving a message of God's provision. We're giving a message of God's love. That looks like providing for and loving other people. Nothing to gain ourselves, but wanting to share the love of God which we've received. We're not going to save ourselves by doing it. But if we're not doing nothing, then we may have a heart of stone. Jesus started his ministry this way. It's in the synagogue. He went up to read. He's given the scroll. And he opened it at Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And all the people in the synagogue knew this is about the Messiah. This is a text which predicts who the Savior was going to be. And he stood up and he read these verses. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. <coughs> To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We have been set free from a heritage which was deserved of death. We've been set free from fear. We've been set free from the penalty of our sins. We've been set free from so much. And in order to share that with other people, James is saying... Don't lose sight of the very message that Jesus gave. gave. Playing good news to the poor. It's not walking past saying, bless you. It's genuinely doing something about it. So Jesus wants us to share with others his heart. He wants us to share grace with others. Remember in Ephesians 2, 8, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. Jesus took a wrecking ball to religion. An absolute wrecking ball. Boom! And they were furious. Absolutely livid. All of the religious people had all of the outside together, been doing this, this, doing all the checklists. He's calling them out. Your heart is far from that heart of my loving father. He took the wrecking ball through it. And James is saying the same. Do not put stuff back on yourselves. Don't get religion. You don't have saving faith. You've got religion. Get rid of it. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. You can definitely share your salvation with others. And the wrecking ball to religion is grace. Something utterly undeserved. 
Something we couldn't earn ourselves. It's been freely given to us. And as we think of sharing that grace with others, let's not forget that we've received it ourselves as well. When we see people in need, reality is, that would be me if God hasn't had a dramatic effect in my life. That could still be me. I don't know what God's going to do, what trials are going to come my way. And we have to have compassion on people. I'm going to ask the band to come up if they're hovering somewhere. Same time as we're being invited to have compassion in others. Know that God is giving compassion to us. Know that he's saying through James to us that I took a wrecking ball to religion. I'm not giving you religion. I'm giving you a relationship. Stop putting the dead clothes upon yourself. Breathe the new life I've given you. You have my spirit living within you. Everything that you need is within you. For the service today, we were praying, asking God, what would the message be you had for people? This is a message from the text, clearly. It's also a message, what would God say to us today? And we were asking him. And it revolves around having Christ's, Christ's heart for you, understanding that. I said under James's words myself, I'm not going to be up here rebuking you. It's to me he's speaking to, the temptation to, to put religion back on myself, to judge people. But rather than beat myself up with that, I remember, no, everything that I ever needed is already there in Christ. He looked at me in my need. He looked at me in my addictions as I was heading for death. And I had lived such a life against him. And I had cursed the life out of him to impress other people, <coughs> impress other people trying to prove he wasn't real. But he knew my need. And he had compassion on me. I think it was done. But he knew his heart, and he had compassion on me. And he sees our need. He knows what it's like when we go through trials. He knows what it's like when we're drawing to temptation, when we're taking our focus off on God. And I would say, if Jesus were here now, James would say to you, hey, have the heart of my brother. Get rid of religion. Don't think this is enough. You've been given a new heart. Help people. Jesus would say, Spirit of the Lord is on me. He says he's anointed to give good news to the poor. He'd say to each one of us, I've come to proclaim freedom to the prisoners. What is it that you're imprisoned to? What is your deepest fear? Christ can handle it. So asking for people who God wants us to minister to, we had a couple of images. One was of a lady underwater, like struggling to breathe, utterly overwhelmed, completely surrounded by I don't know what, gasping for the surface. Another image we had was of someone trying to look at a candle, and it was kind of going in and out of focus. Jesus himself, says, you know, I've not come to blow out a wick. He's come to rekindle it. So with both of these, I think if you feel overwhelmed by life situation, overwhelmed by fear, 
If you feel your faith is this big, if it's in Jesus, it is enough. He's saying, I want to proclaim freedom to you. And we're going to pray you into God's presence. As we're singing a final song together, we're going to have people up the front. We would love them to pray for you. As you receive God's grace. Our job as we pray for people we never condemn is to put people in front of God's grace just as we need it ourselves. And Jesus also, like I've said, uh, given recovery of sight for the blind. He heals physically. He had a strong sense that if someone has an issue with a knee or knees, whether you can come forward or not, God wants to heal you. If you have a problem with fuzzy thinking, God wants to heal you, to see clearly, to think clearly, to be your full self in Christ as he has intended. Friends, Jesus wants his very best for us. He wants grace. He wants you to know you're his beloved child. He wants you to know the heart of his Father that saw us in our need and had compassion on us and rescued us. And he wants that living, beating heart in us to have compassion on other people. And do you know what he wants in return? For his very best, our very worst, our very darkest moments, the bits about ourselves that we want no one to know, the things we've said, the things we've thought, the things that we've done. And he says, I have come to set you free. You keep that secret, it's going to grow. But in grace, it will burn away. So friends, will we, you stand with me as we sing the final song? We do not need to be condemned to death. We need to cry out to Jesus. Faith without works is dead, but you are alive in Christ.